You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. One morning, 18 years ago, I stepped out of a New York City subway on a beautiful day in September. The sun was warm and bright, the sky was a clear, perfect blue, I had my six-month-old son in one of those front-facing baby carriers, you know, so he could see everything. And when I turned right on Sixth Avenue, what he saw was the World Trade Center on fire. As soon as I realized that this was an attack, the first thing I did without even really thinking about it was to take my baby and turn him around in that carrier. I, I didn't want him to see what was going on. And I just remember feeling so grateful that he was still young enough that I didn't have to tell him that someone had done this on purpose. 9-11 was like crossing a border, a hostile border into dangerous, uncharted territory. The world was suddenly in this terrifying new place, and I was in this place as a new mother. I remember my thoughts kind of ping-ponging around from how am I ever going to protect this baby to how am I ever going to get some sleep? Well, my son turned 18 this year, along with millions of other people who were babies on 9-11. And in that time, we have all crossed into this hostile, uncharted territory of climate breakdown, of endless wars, of economic meltdowns, of deep political divisions, of the many crises around the world that I don't need to list off because they are blaring at you every single day from your newsfeed. But there is something I've learned in these 18 years of parenting and in my years leading a global women's rights organization. There is a way to face these big crises in the world without feeling overwhelmed and despairing. It's simple and it's powerful. It's to think like a mother. I hope you enjoyed that clip from Yafat Suskind's 2019 TED Talk titled In Uncertain Times, Think Like a Mother. I'm Doc G, and today on Earn and Invest, we celebrate Mother's Day. There are 2 billion mothers in the world today, of which 85.4 million of them are in the U.S. 4.3 babies are born each second. Notably, a sizable minority of children in rich countries live with just one parent, a parent who is likely to be female and also likely to be working. 
Speak to virtually any successful human being, and they will likely credit at least some of their good fortune to their mother's tutelage. I was one of that sizable minority of children who grew up with just one parent. When I was eight years old, my father died suddenly of a cerebral aneurysm, leaving behind his wife and three young children. My mother, at the time a housewife and formerly trained as a chemist, fortuitously was six months from graduating from a prestigious business school and quickly secured a position at a big corporate accounting firm. By my own recollections, my childhood was lacking in nothing. Logically, I know that after my father died, the times were tough. But those early memories of my mother as a stay-at-home mom and then a widow were quickly replaced by those of the accountant, landlord, investor, and entrepreneur that she became. And somewhere during all the tumult and turmoil of childhood, she managed to pass on to us children a sense of security and values that continue to guide us in our journeys today as husbands, fathers, and financially successful adults. Today, I introduce you to my mother, Harriet. She graduated college from the University of Michigan and eventually entered a master's degree in organic chemistry. After marrying my father, she left her PhD program to follow him to Thailand after he was drafted into the Vietnam War, and she taught high school in the International School of Bangkok. She was a few months away from finishing her MBA at the Kellogg School of Business when my father unexpectedly died. Left with three children and no immediate source of income, she moved effortlessly to corporate America on the path to eventually running a business of her own. Furthermore, she became a savvy stock market investor, landlord, and successful entrepreneur. She also taught me almost everything of value that I know. Today, I invite my mother on the show to discuss growing up with immigrant parents, her early money lessons, career, and the joys of grandparenting. Happy Mother's Day today on Earn and Invest. I am delighted to introduce you to the one and only Mother Mama Doc G. This is my mother, Harriet. She's on the show today for Mother's Day. And first and foremost, happy Mother's Day. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here and spend this time with you. I am so happy to have this conversation with you because often on this podcast, I talk about my financial beliefs and how I learned about finances growing up. And of course, a lot of that came from you. So I'm really excited to dive into some of your story and how it's affected my financial upbringing. First and foremost, do you remember back as a kid, did you used to talk about money with your mom and dad? Yes, we did talk about money. As you know, my dad was an accountant, and so he was very involved with with finance and with money. He worked for the city of New York, and he was the head of one of the accounting divisions, which I remember visiting him at as a child down in Lower Manhattan Financial District, but I don't remember the name of what division he was in charge with for the city of New York. He also had a small private practice, which he did tax returns during tax season that I used to help him with and got involved that way. And money and saving were very, very important. We were both my mother and father came to the U.S. as immigrants and It was very, very important for them to have financial independence and to build a life better than the life they left in their respective old countries. So money was a subject we talked about, how to be wise, how to how to earn money, how to be responsible with money. It was it was an important issue. 
looking back, you know, your parents grew up in a time of what today we would call duress. So your father, I think, came by himself from Russia to the United States as a teenager. And your mother was an orphan and grew up a lot of her young adult life and up to the point where she's able to leave the orphanage. And this was right around the 1920s and the Great Depression, et cetera. Those sound like heady times compared to today. Oh, I think they were extremely difficult. And my mother, who went to work right after high school, told me stories about her family. Even though she was an orphan, she had quite a large family and people, she was working. And so people were needing money from her. She told me stories about carrying light bulbs from one room to another in order to light the rooms that they were they were in. She lived with several other people after she left the orphanage and and they they all very fortunately were working and it was it was a very stressful time there was not there was not much of anything in either of my parents childhood in terms of money and certainly no extra money Back then, where's there this idea of financial equality? I imagine if you're going back to the 20s and 30s and 40s, this idea that money was kind of the man's domain. On the other hand, your mother, my grandmother, had to fend for herself after leaving the orphanage. Was she just as involved as your dad was in financial decisions? I think that as a, my mother was single until she was 28 years old. And as a single woman, she figured it out. In other words, she lived with a bunch of her girlfriends. They they figured out how to go on trips. They supported the parents of the girl's house they lived in. And they, they just worked it out. And they worked very hard. All of them worked very hard. After they got married, my dad, who had gone to college, which was such a wonderful, wonderful accomplishment for someone with his background and he was he was very very smart and he kind of felt that well you know he got this job with the city of new york and it was a good job and that my mother should stay home and she should not have to work that it was a sort of a badge of honor that she didn't have to work that lasted not terribly long because my mother, who had been used to handling her own money, she wanted more and she decided she was going to go out and earn it. And she also got a very good job. And from the time I was probably 10, she worked in Midtown Manhattan and she, she saved her money. She, when she died, she had an incredible amount of money considering the times that she lived in. And she did a wonderful job. It was important. It was important. Which is an important thing looking back too, because your father died at a pretty young age. So your mother had to support herself for decades and decades. And not only did she have to support herself, she had to figure out how to manage money. And she's like I said, she had done it as a as a young woman, but it was different now. And she had to figure out how to invest money. And when my father died, she got a pension from the city of New York. 
and they didn't give it to you as an annuity. It was a lump sum that you got at that time when, when he died. And, and she had to figure out how to go to a stockbroker, how to invest her money. And she really got into it. She got into picking stocks on her own. And she would do some very clever things. For instance, she was interested in New York had a big candy show. And she wanted to see which of the candy makers she felt were going to be very successful. So she <laughs> used to go every year to the candy show and by tasting the candies, <laughs> try to figure out which stock she should invest in. So that kind of was the way she, she made decisions. And it was it was so wonderful. It really was wonderful. <laughs> now, you're talking about grandma as she got older. Do you remember as a kid, were stocks things your mom or dad bought? Did they talk about things like real estate or were they pretty much thinking about making money from their jobs? Yeah, there was no investing in my youth. My parents did not have, even though both of them worked, it was very important that they send us to college. And the only uh, the only time there were discussions of things like stocks were after my dad died and my mom had this lump sum that she got from the city of New York. But before that, no. No. And my dad was very, very conservative. And also he, he, he was, he, he, taking chances were not his strong suit. It would have seemed to him very, very risky to do something like put your money in something like a stock. It just would have felt too uncomfortable is what I think. And although we knew other people in our neighborhood, our neighborhood was made up of a lot of professional people. There were lawyers. There weren't too many doctors, but there were lawyers and accountants and teachers and and that sort of thing. Lots of immigrants, the whole area were people that had come over from Europe. And there were some friends of ours who bought a car or bought a maybe a summer property. And my girlfriend's father, they had a property in the Hamptons and stuff. And that was too scary for my father. So I think that if there was any extra money at the time, it was in a savings account somewhere. You're talking about your mother who was going to the candy get together every year so she could taste the product so she knew what to invest in. And then on the other hand, your father, who was quite conservative and was afraid to put his money towards those ventures. I start seeing generationally where we get some of our ideas from, because I really think these ideas are generational. Tell me about you and money as a kid. Were you encouraged to work? Oh, yes. Yes. Work was. Work was really a necessity. Uh, there wasn't even a question of would you work. It just it it was when when are you going to work was was it. I started work at the age of fourteen after school, and I was too young to work, <laughs> and so I used my sister's name and social security number when I got my job so that I could start at fourteen instead of waiting till sixteen. I worked at Macy's in Manhattan. And I used to take the train 
from my high school two days a week downtown. And I worked from five to nine. And then I would take the train home at nine and then all day Saturday. So it was like a 20 hour a week job. And there was no question. It would just, just was what was going to happen. Perhaps it was a little early. I probably could have been okay if I waited two more years. But when we figured out that we could just use the social security number and the different name, just go ahead and try and see if I got hired. And I did. You had mentioned that to your parents, this idea that their children would go to college was really important. Nowadays, paying for college is forefront on our mind. Back then, were you worried about the cost of college? Was that something you thought you'd pay for? Were your parents going to pay for it? Was it even an issue then? Yeah, it was an issue. And I think that it, it, was, it was never something where you considered not doing it. I went to college and thought to myself and spoke with my parents, and we decided when I got into Michigan that I'd figure it out when I got there, how I was going to make the payments. So it wasn't the sort of thing where it was all decided before I got there. It was like, just go, just go, and you'll figure out what you'll do. And it worked out that way because I I went, I was a chemistry major. And when I got to, to college, I remember as a freshman, I knew I was going to be a chemistry major. So going into the chemistry office and I, I can still see it and saying, I need a job. And if I'm going to stay here, I need a job. And yeah, I got a job and I did that. I worked for graduate students, my my whole four years, three years. I got married at the end of three years. So Nowadays, there's this big argument, especially with bringing up kids. Do you go for your passion or do you go for what makes financial sense when you're talking about career-wise? Were those kind of thoughts even inside your head when you're thinking about, clearly you wanted to become a chemist, you went to school thinking you were going to become a chemist, were you worried about the finances of how that was going to work out, how you were going to support yourself? Were those the kind of things that entered your mind back then? No, because I think I got this from my mother. And it was always, no matter what situation you're in, you're going to be able to make it work. I just had a very, very strong sense of that. So I never would have thought to myself, gee, Am I going to make enough money doing this? No, it was more about, it was my passion. I loved tinkering in a lab with test tubes. And it just, I looked ahead and I just knew it was going to work. One one way or another, it was going to work. Did it change your trajectory when you got married? I mean, here you're marrying a doctor to be, Certainly, that's going to change your life. I know you said that your dad was very conservative and he wanted your mom to stay home and that didn't last very long. When you got married, was this this idea of, okay, I'm going to stay home and have kids now and and kind of put working on the side for the moment? So I married your dad at the end of my third year of college. But in reality, I had already finished. We spent a year, he did a residency in Ann Arbor. And in that year, I got accepted into the 
a PhD chemistry program. And I was doing that until he got drafted. And it was a very big decision to decide what to do, whether to stay and complete my degree. And I, I, I'm still not sure why I didn't pursue what I was loving. But the mystery and the, the excitement of going over to Thailand and working in the international school there teaching chemistry and physics, it, it just, it, 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 it was, it somehow won over all those years of wanting to get the PhD. And I guess I figured at some point I would go back and do it. And I did think about going back and doing it at some point. It's notable that your trip to Thailand was actually illegal, right? Because dad was in the active services and you were not supposed to follow him to a wartime area. That's right. That's right. I was not. And that's why I didn't go over as a spouse. I went over as a teacher. I didn't go over until I was hired. And getting hired at the International School in Bangkok just wound up being pretty easy because finding teachers of chemistry and physics who spoke English in this international school was not that easy. There weren't that many people, I guess, who were interested in doing that. And um, I got hired before I left, before I flew over there. And so I wasn't there as a spouse. I was there as a, as a teacher. And so tell us a little about the trajectory of your career. So you were there in Thailand, you were teaching that obviously didn't last forever. I know at some point when we were kids, you were home with us, at least during the beginning of our childhood. Where did you go from there? And how did you decide eventually to leave the workforce? We came back from Thailand and your oldest brother was born at the Air Force Base in Colorado Springs. And then we came to Chicago for your dad to do his residency, and I got a job working in a lab at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Health Center. And it was, it was an immunology lab, and it was a very wonderfully interesting job. And it was also, in those days, getting a job that was three days a week was, flexible time schedules didn't, didn't, weren't part of the, the picture in those days, but I was working for a man whose wife was also in the workforce. She did not yet have children, but he was pretty sympathetic. And I think he was thinking ahead that when his wife wanted to go back to work after they started having children, you know, he would want somebody that would be willing to take her a few days a week. So that, that was fortunate. And I worked at that job for about four years. And <laughs> the way that job ultimately came to a conclusion, a termination, was that I had a live-in housekeeper working for us at the time. And your brothers were two years apart. So when your oldest brother was three and your youngest brother was one. I got pregnant with you. And when I told the housekeeper 
who the, the woman who was living with us that I was pregnant again, she left that weekend. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> she packed her bags and said, two is enough. I'm not sticking around for another one. I just decided that with three very small children, I ought to take a break to stay home. And that's how I got out of the workforce. Going back to that time, how did you see yourself financially? I mean, did you feel wealthy? Did you feel middle class? Did you feel like worrying from moment to moment about having enough to make a go of it? Or did you feel fairly comfortable? Your dad was a resident during all this period of time and enjoying being a resident. And then he was a fellow. At some point, he was either going to stay with the university health system or perhaps go into practice with some other people. And I guess we didn't have a lot of extra, but the future certainly looked bright enough. And I didn't think that we'd have any problems. Now, the mother I know as an adult is one who's incredibly savvy about investments, has been involved in real estate, who has owned and run her own businesses. Compared that to the woman you were then, I mean, did you know anything of investing? Did you know anything about kind of doing some of these more advanced financial moves? No, no, I knew a lot about being a mother. And I, <laughs> I remember that one of the things that propelled me back to work was the realization that not a single piece of mail that came to the house was addressed to me anymore. It was either addressed to your dad or addressed to the parents of the children or relating to the parents of the children. But I realized that there wasn't much, uh, I didn't have much identity left in many ways. But I had always, because of my childhood, I think, been aware of thoughts about investing. Your dad and I did some investing with. We didn't have a lot of extras, you can imagine, with, with three little children, but but it was not top of mind. It was something that was was relegated to out there in the future. There's something we were going to do in the future. Unlike today, when your kids were born, the 529 plans were started. When you guys were born, there was not any thought of things like that. They weren't, it wasn't available. It wasn't an investment vehicle. But I don't think I thought about your college when you were very small, other than knowing you'd go. Let's take a break. I'm joined today by my mom, Harriet, who grew up a child of immigrants and eventually transitioned from chemist to stay-at-home mom. Fortuitously, she was in the midst of pursuing a second career when my father unexpectedly died. I'm Doc G., and this is Earn and Invest. Here on the Earn and Invest podcast, we often talk about real estate, but we don't always go into the depth that real real estate junkies and investors are interested in. That's why I'm happy to tell you about the Real Estate and Financial Independence podcast with Coach Carson. Here, Chad, also known as The Coach, 
talks about real estate and how to use it as a vehicle to financial independence. He usually has two types of episodes, one in which he is the expert teaching you the tips and tricks of this awesome asset class. The other is proof of concept, where he has examples of people who come on and tell you how they made a living using real estate and made their way to financial independence. This is a great podcast. Check them out at coachcarson.com. You won't be sorry. Let me reintroduce you. Harriet, my mom, was a single mother of three kids when she started her second career, a career that would bring great financial and professional success. Before the break, we discussed her decision to return to work. You had done most of your education in chemistry. At some point, you decided to go to business school. Why the hankering to get an MBA? Why accounting after all this time in chemistry and then being a stay-at-home mom? Well, it was very serendipitous because I was then, after you were born and you were getting a little older and it became possible to think about, I mean, your older brothers were going to school and it was possible to think about getting some help in the house and me going back to work. And that was when the decision The place that I had worked at Press St. Luke's was very happy to take me back, and also I could pursue the PhD. So that's where that came back as a consideration. However, after talking with your dad about going back to work, a big part of the conversation was I was clearly going back to work because it had always been part of my plan. But I was going back to work so I could earn a living. And we just thought that if anything happened to him, I had to be able to earn a living. And in fact, while research was wonderful and fed my soul, and I still long, (laughs) I still miss the career I didn't have in research, to tell you the truth. But We just looked at it and said, you know, we've got some kids here and and they're going to be expensive. And if I'm going to go back, I may as well go back in something where I think I can make a decent living. I thought then I had obviously I had always had some interest in accounting from my dad's past. And Northwestern was around the corner and Kellogg Graduate School of Management was a stellar, wonderful school. Uh, Your dad, we got a tuition break because your dad was on faculty in the medical department and applying to go to the Ph.D. program. Just it just seemed wise. It, It just and although I did love research, I felt pretty flexible. I just felt I needed to do what what I thought was going to be best and best for the family. And so and and I was interested in it. It wasn't a hardship. So that's what got me back to Northwestern. And of course, there's foreshadowing there because people who've listened to this podcast know before that my father died when I was eight, dad died. And you were what, six months before finishing business school or something to that extent? Yes, I was. He died in February and I graduated from Kellogg in June. Between February and June, I sat for the CPA exam and fortunately passed it. And so I was in a pretty decent position six months after. 
I had never, I did not have a job. The scary thing, oh, well, lots of scary things, but one of the big scary things was that when he passed away, I, that was when I was in school, so I didn't have a job. But I felt that I was somewhat good material for a job. I had actually started interviewing, interestingly enough, in my last year in graduate school. In February, when he passed, I was doing an internship. So I had been interviewing with accounting firms with a very good reception. So people, I was asked back. They were interested. I was older. I was a woman. There weren't that many women in these large international accounting firms. And I was a woman who already had her children. And I stressed that actually in interviews, <laughs> even though you're not supposed to talk about stuff like that. But I said, look, you guys have to start hiring women. And I am not going to leave on maternity leave. I'm done. <laughs> you know, I've got three little kids. I'm not, I'm not having any more children. And it was a good, even though it was probably illegal to talk about, it was a good selling point. It went over well. And I did get... I got several offers. So even though I was not working when he passed away, I was just doing an internship. I pretty much felt certain that I, I was going to have a job at the end of it. And is it true that when dad passed away, you had never written a check by yourself before? Am I correct in saying that? No, I don't think so. No, I must have. No, I no, actually, that's probably I don't think that's true because I had been the one. I probably, by the time he had died and I had been in graduate school, I had probably been the person getting tax information together and because I was I was in, in this finance mode by then. So we were pretty young. I think I was eight years old. But I can look at that event and imagine that for you emotionally, that must have changed your feelings towards finances quite a bit because probably for the first time, at least very clearly, you must have had some very real fears of not having enough. Can you in your brain look back to that time period and say, yeah, I remember feeling safe and then feeling very worried about having enough money? I was terrified. It wasn't even a question of being worried. I was terrified. I, I remember the top of mind thought clearly missing him and, and all of that. But the top of mind thought as, as I realized that he was going was how am I going to put these children through college? And more than that, that was, that was a big part of it. But even a bigger part was how am I going to bring these children up with a sense of security? How am I going to convince them that there's no need for them to worry, that they need to focus on growing up and, and being confident and assured and willing to take risks if they were living in a house that felt like it was on the brink of disaster? That was my biggest concern. It was number one, where the money was going to come from. But more than that, how was I going to make you all believe that you didn't have anything to worry about? And so the leading question, of course, is how did you do that? I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't know because we did have something to worry about. We really didn't have anyone who stepped in and said, uh, I've got your back. There wasn't. My mother, <laughs> my mother did, but I knew by that time I was helping her with her finances, <laughs> finances. So I knew that that wasn't much of a, of a cushion. And I was so intent on making sure that your growing up was not distracted by concerns about money that I think I convinced myself that there was nothing to worry about or that I was going to project always that there was nothing to worry about. And I was going to project to you that no matter what came our way in terms of money and everything else, we were going to be able to handle it. That was my primary concern. I wanted you all to know that as bad as things were, we were all going to come out of it okay. Now, was that also your entry into the stock market? Because it seems to me like there was some insurance money left over from when dad died. Mm-hmm. And do I remember correctly that there was either an insurance agent or a financial advisor mm-hmm. who kind of took you aside and said, okay, this is what you need to do with your money? He was an insurance agency and agent, and he visited us for many, many years after. I don't remember. He would come over all the time just to check and make sure I was okay. It was a series of, of sort of lucky moves. At, at the beginning, it was during the 80s where interest rates were 14 to 15%. So you didn't have to be very... You didn't have to be very daring. You just could put your money into CDs, which is amazing now when you think about it. And it was fine. But at some point, I knew I was going to have to take some risks. There was just no question about it. Mark was three, four years from college. I, I, I had to. And yes, I started researching and fortunately, Nessie, I was I was in I was in graduate school. I was I was studying all of this. So I made some moves with my fingers crossed and they worked out well. It's interesting when I hear you talk about this because you know, I think I can separate my childhood into different time periods. And Mm -hmm. certainly the time around dad died, I hear exactly what you're saying. And that kind of fits. But then I also know you as when I got older and in high school, and you were doing things like having lots of real estate and running businesses. Mm -hmm. You said that with your kids, you wanted to make sure they knew that money wasn't a problem, or you wanted to convey that to them. Were there some other financial ideas or teachings you wanted to make sure we had when we were kids? Were there things you, you wanted to make sure we knew growing up? about money? So I think that the way that I was living my life, I I think I felt that that was going to be a good example because while I didn't want you to worry about money, in reality, I had to be pretty careful. I just had to do it in a way that didn't make you anxious. I just had to do it in a way that felt like it made sense. And it considering financial decisions, weighing different things, what to spend money on, what not to spend money on. I just felt I was I was conveying an example 
that was fitting our lifestyle, again, without giving you an overall sense of panic, but a, a chance to see how to make good decisions. Now, all three of us worked. On the other hand, looking back in my childhood, I never really felt like I or any of us were wanting of anything. Did you ever worry about spoiling us? No, I don't think I I had the wherewithal. The, the thing that, that made it easier, and as you got older, you have to remember that I had a very successful business. And so the, the financial worries really receded into the background. And I realized that I wasn't that worried. There was no way I was going to make you all crazy about, about whether we had money or not. And then it just became a desire to make sure that we were making good financial decisions, that we were weighing things and, and being careful, making good spending decisions. And yet uh, other times we did do some frivolous things, but always, I think, you know, with the thought of you do, the, you do this once in a while, this isn't your everyday behavior. So my kids are 16 and 13, your grandkids, and I know that they're getting to that age where I'm starting to think about their financial future. Did you ever worry that we wouldn't make it? Like, did you ever worry, oh my gosh, what if it doesn't work for them? What if they don't get the jobs they want? What if they have trouble finding jobs? Was this a big concern in your mind, like our ability to kind of adult and get a job and make a living? I think parents always are worried um, about that. I don't know if I was worried about whether or not you could necessarily make a living. I think it was more worried about were you going to be successful being what you wanted to be? Were you going to be successful in finding a mate? Were you going to um, be fulfilled in what your job was? I'm sure money was always there, but it was, again, more of a, if everything else works out okay, the money itself will work out okay. I wasn't ever worried about anybody needing money and asking me for it, because by then, not only having been married, but also in another, you know, a situation with my work, that that wouldn't have been a problem. But of course, I wanted you to be independent, but you you had independent role models. I couldn't picture you. It didn't seem that in our family, anyone was going to turn around and say, I can't do this. You know, I can't make a living. It wasn't, it wasn't part of behavior that we were accustomed to. Let's fast forward to looking at us as adults. What do you make of our financial lives? I know we've all made decisions, especially I've made decisions, pulling back from work, getting interested in the financial independence, retire early movement. How does that hit you? It must sound a little strange coming from where you've come from. Not necessarily, because I think the most important thing is whether or not you're happy with what you're doing. And I, you remember the, the interview you did with your brothers, it came away with that your two brothers for sure were pretty happy with what they were doing and seemed pretty satisfied with what they were doing. And I, I think if you had come out of medical school and decided that you really didn't want to do this, maybe I would have felt that it 
it was a shame if you hadn't given it a chance. But having spent as many years as you did doing this work that I totally respect your decision. And I don't judge whether I think it's funny, you know, different or, or anything you shouldn't do. I, I just have respect for you being able to make the right decision in your own life. This idea of retiring early or leaving the workforce has become in vogue over the last decade or so. A lot of people are talking about doing it early and earlier and earlier in their life. Did it ever occur to you to work less or quit earlier or not be employed or run your own business as long as you did? No, and I'm still, I do, I still work a lot. I help out in my office a lot. So, but I love what I do. And I love helping people out. As long as I have the time to do all the other things I want to do, keeping involved in, in my in in helping out in my office gives me pleasure. But I still do all the other things I love to do, so it doesn't doesn't take me away from anything. Now, another controversial idea that has become in vogue lately is this idea that higher education may not be necessary or we're spending too much money on higher education. You and I have gone back and forth on this quite a bit. What do you think about hearing kind of some of the younger generation saying school is a waste of time? I can learn it on YouTube or I need to learn by experience. How does that affect you seeing what you've seen and and how we've grown up as kids? I think everybody has different ways in which they learn. And, and clearly, there are some people who are very self-motivated and will, will learn anyway, regardless of the situation they're in. But I think that higher education is a gift that at the age that you pursue it, you know, 20-ish, 19, whatever it is, until you know, your late 20s or however long you're at it. It's a gift to give yourself for your family to give you that will enrich the rest of your life. I think the the people that you meet, the way, ah, the way that you learn how to be an adult. And I am even seeing that now in my grandchildren who have started college. They're changing. I haven't seen them for three, four months, but they're changing when I talk to them. They're thinking in different ways. Their world is bigger. And that's the gift that I think at a time of your life where you get to be responsible only for yourself, it's such a wonderful time of your life to give yourself the gift of of learning, exploring, failing, doing whatever it is that, that you're going to do with those years. It, to me, it's worth every penny that you spend on it. Speaking of grandchildren, you now are watching your grandchildren grow up, and I'm wondering how it's different seeing them turn into adults compared to your own children. Does it feel like a different process or very similar? It's very similar, and it's very wonderful. Your grandchildren, <laughs> you should have children just so that you get grandchildren, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> They're a much better version, I think. They, they are. The, the, the 2.0 version is 
something that gives you pleasure beyond belief as you look at these grandchildren and you see things in them and you watch them grow and develop and you recognize stuff from your own kids, from your own spouse, from your own parents. You see these things in your grandchildren and it it makes your life complete. <laughs> Tell me, looking back at your life, was there anything you would have changed financially? Like if you could do it again, was there anything you said, boy, I really made a mistake here. I could have done that better. No. I don't think so. Even when you were young and we were, we were in, you know, we, we were, were, didn't have very much money. And then, of course, after your dad was gone and there wasn't that much money, there was always a feeling of saving for the future, of the future was always going to be better. And it worked out that way that if you just kept at it, even if it wasn't big amounts, but you just kept at it, you were going to get to that promised land. <laughs> and it's so, very nice to have that when you're older, to be able to say, I can do whatever I want. It's, it's a wonderful thing. All of your kids are kind of dancing around that 50-year mark. Some of us are a little bit younger. Some of us are a little bit older. What advice would you give us you now kind of gone through our stage of life. We're trying to figure out what it means to be 50 years old, to have kids, kids who are growing up. What would you tell us about being happy for the next 30 or 40 years? Try to enjoy everything you do. Try to figure out what gives you pleasure and pursue that. And keep your family ties as strong as you can. Stay involved with your kids, of course, with your nieces, with your nephews, with your brothers, with your sister. Be as close to them as you can, because that's where, in my opinion, the real pleasure in life comes. And then I think the other important thing as you get older, figure out what you like to do when you have free time. You know, when what is it I like to do when I really don't have anything pressing to do? What gives me pleasure? And be open to all kind. try everything, all kinds of different things. As you get older, anytime you get a chance to do something you've never done before, just do it. Just do it and see what it feels like. See if you like it. And the other very, very important thing as you get older and look at what to do with your life is find ways to give back. I, I think that gives... Whoever it's to, if it's your family, if it's not to your family, it's people you've worked with, try ways to give back because that's that's a pleasure. Well, Ma, I wanted to thank you for being on the show with me on Mother's Day. I think it's a great chance to look back at our lives. And the one thing is I almost smile when you talk about the times when we didn't have as much, because if you ask me about my childhood, I'd say it was full of abundance and wealth. And that was not just money, but love and support and excitement. And if you were trying to keep us from worrying about having enough money, you must have done a great job at it, because that certainly was something I think none of us ever felt. Mm -hmm. And so... As I look at my own kids and the future, I hope to provide them with the same things. I'm sure you are. It runs in the family. Yeah. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you.
Hey everybody, I just wanted to remind you that there is a place that we celebrate mothers not only on Mother's Day, but always, and that is the Earn and Invest Facebook group. You can get there by going to earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. There we continue the discussions that we have every Monday and Thursday on our episodes, but we do it with you, the community. We talk about everything from personal finance to general finance to the economy to what is happening in our world today. I would love to see you there. Check us out and become part of our community. Now for part of the community segment, I had posted an article in the Facebook group from Apple News. Parents are sacrificing their financial wellness to support their adult children. This originally occurred on CNBC. The article says, quote, many American parents are financially supporting their adult children at the expense of their own financial wellness. Almost half or 45% of parents with adult offspring have given their children money during the coronavirus pandemic. And of those, 79% said that the funds would have otherwise gone towards their own personal finances. This is an interesting conversation. Do you support your children or not as they get older and become adults? The first place we really have to consider this is college, right? Do you pay for your own kids' college if they go? I've heard great arguments for both, but what happens once they've graduated college? They are off on their own. Maybe they have jobs. Maybe they don't. Do you support them or not? Let's see what the community says. Kathleen replied, if only. I don't even think I had an allowance when I was a kid. I remember back, I did have an allowance, but once I got a job at the age of 14, I told my mom I didn't need it anymore. So Kathleen, you and I might be on the same position here. Dan Huffman, a former guest, said, unless they're extenuating circumstance, my take is no. Chad said, supporting your children like this is similar to supporting a drug addiction by giving the person money. Kids need to learn independence or they will fail to launch and get devoured throughout life by the real world. Wow, a drug addiction. Those are bold words, but I certainly hear where you're coming from. Alma said, except for situations involving children with medical needs, the Millionaire Next Door chapter, Economic Outpatient Care, is all one needs to know about this. Yeah, if you read The Millionaire Next Door, uh... By Stanley and Danko, they talk about this concept of economic outpatient care. When we provide regular care for our adult children, they tend to do worse than those who don't have it. In fact, most millionaires do not get this kind of care. And finally, Brandon said, not only no, but hell no. A parent's primary role should be to raise successful adults. If you're still raising them after 18 to 21 years old, you have failed. Again, lots of strong words about whether we should support our adult children. It's something I struggle with quite a bit, not only once they're adults, but do I start investing for them now as they are kids? I could afford, for instance, to take $1,000, put them in their names for each of them, and put it in a broad-based index fund and do that every year for the next 10 or 15 years. By the time they were 25 or 30 years old, they would have quite a bit of money. Should I do it or not? It's something I'm still considering. Certainly my plan is to pay for their college educations. But above and beyond that, I like this idea of them learning to fend for themselves. So I agree. I think with a lot of our community members, this is a chance for kids to learn how to earn on their own, and we don't want to take that away from them. On the other hand, I certainly could see if there was a major catastrophe, a medical illness, 
or a horrible recession in which no one could get a job and I had the money sitting around, I imagine that I would support them. It's a great conversation, something for us all to consider as we earn and invest not only in our future, but the future of our children. Don't forget to check us out on the Facebook group. That's earnandinvest.com slash Facebook so we can continue having these great conversations. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. That's a wrap. All right. That's great. I will make this into an episode and we will drop it. It's going to be dropped on Monday, which will be like the Monday after Mother's Day. Sounds wonderful. You did perfect. This will be easy to edit. Cameron's going to edit. He's sitting there with you. It'll be easy to edit. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's good for me. A, I think it's just interesting. I think your story is interesting. I think our story is interesting. But the other thing is it gives people an insight to who I am. And I often talk glancingly in the podcast about me or my childhood or things about my life. So it's kind of nice to actually hear some of the real background. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure it's nice to be, you know, to be a person. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is a yoga class? Get out of here. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.